Well, if you're new to the valley or just new to rockfish, what we like to do here is move through books of the Bible verse by verse and try to get a sense of what God has said to us. We're currently working through the book of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And our one big thing this morning, that's the one BT in your little insert there, if you were wondering what that means. It's the one big thing or the one truth that I want you to think about throughout the week as you meditate on this passage and allow God to work in you through his word. The one big thing is that the gospel is unique, powerful, explosive, and it changes everything. We're going to work through the text in three parts, fasting, feasting, and fermenting. Fasting, feasting, and fermenting. I know we're Baptists, so the whole fermenting thing makes us a little uncomfortable, but that's the imagery Jesus uses, so we're sticking to it, right? I'm just joking there a little bit. Uh, fasting, feasting, fermenting. In 1964, and some of y'all were around for this, Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan sorry, wrote these words. Come gather around people wherever you roam, and admit that the waters around you have grown. And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone. For the times, they are a-changing. That's what we're going to see in our text this morning. Change has come in the form of the kingdom of God. Everything changes with Jesus. Old forms of religion and ritual cannot adequately communicate the good news of the gospel. The faith of Judaism will give way to the kingdom of Jesus. And Jesus is inaugurated his kingdom, and he's going to correct the misunderstanding that this ritualistic religious activity or obedience to the law devoid of change in your heart can save you. You see, the law of God was never intended to be a system of salvation, but was given to reveal God's perfect character, to show men how completely incapable we are of keeping God's perfect law. It was given to cause us to humble ourselves and by faith look to the Savior that would keep the law for us. What the Pharisees and many other Jews had done instead was use the works of the law as a way to try and save themselves. Jesus is overthrowing this utterly sinful system of works. Jesus is revealing the kingdom of God. He's showing us that the way you become right with God is not built on your own merit, but on grace and faith. Jesus' kingdom is for sinners, not those that have the form of godliness but deny its power. Jesus is revealing the mysteries of God's redemptive plan. Jesus is not another addition or patch onto the law. He is the explanation of and end of the law. He's making all things new, and this is good news. Good news for sinners, that is. For those that loved religion and ritual, it was condemnation. Jesus' message was a siren sound declaring, to quote the great Bob Dylan, times they are changing. Would you pray with me this morning?
Dear Heavenly Father, help us to learn. Help us to hear your voice, ready our hearts, that we might learn from your word, that your Holy Spirit might apply it to our very lives. Lord, help us to not only understand it, but to be changed by it. We thank you that the gospel changes everything, including us, but it itself does not change. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is our firm rock and the foundation for all of life. We thank you that you've called us to yourself in him, that you've united us together. Lord, thank you for the better word that the cross speaks, the better word that your son's blood speaks. That word is one of peace and of rest. The word that allows us to be made right with you. Father, we thank you for all these things. Help us to submit ourselves to your word this morning. Amen. Look with me at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to them, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Let me paraphrase this for you a little bit. What they're saying is, hey, we know that they're really spiritual people in our society. Those that we really look up to, the really religious, John the Baptist people and the Pharisees people, they all fast. If you were really spiritual, Jesus, y'all would be fasting. So why don't you fast? I think before we move on, we have to first ask a simple question. What exactly is, is fasting? And I think that we can define it as this. It's abstaining from food and possibly drink for a limited period of time as a mark of religious commitment and devotion or as an expression of repentance for sins. Maybe a little bit more simply, it's giving up something physical in order to focus on the spiritual Fasting is typically a good thing throughout Scripture, and it's considered one of the main expressions of pious Judaism, along with almsgiving and prayer. And while Judaism required only one fast per year on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, the self-imposed fast or voluntary fast would occur, occur quite often. We see feasts that lamented, I'm sorry, fasts that lamented national tragedies such as the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. We see fast in times of crisis, such as war and plague and drought and famine. And we see self-imposed facts, fast for any number of reasons. And in Jesus' day, although it was not a legal requirement, except in one instance, the Day of Atonement, as we said, fasting had become kind of a prerequisite of religious commitment. It was a sign of atonement of sin and humiliation and penitence before God was a general aid to prayer. And the rabbis often referred to fasting as an affliction of the soul, and thereby designated it as a characteristic act, a sacrificial act of piety. And so the truly religious fasted twice a week now. It was Mondays and Thursdays. They, those were fasting days. That was to show how truly committed and spiritual you were. Now, we know that Jesus himself fasted when he was in the wilderness being tempted. We know that he instructs his disciples about fasting, and we see early Christians fast in Acts 13. In fact, today, Christians still fast. It's an old and historic practice, and I think it's, it's a good thing. 
But of course, it's of no value in terms of making us acceptable before God. But when, when struggling with sin or coldness or trial or an important decision, then it's appropriate to fast. Usually it's in those times that uh, we find that our prayer lives are strengthened, that our thoughts are focused, that our direction, that we're seeking God's direction in our life is a little bit honed. It's a time where we're able to express sorrow and, and seek forgiveness. It shows our repentance. It gives us humility before God. It shows our utter dependence upon Him. Highlights our complete spiritual bankruptcy before Him. Demonstrates our need for His infinite wealth. Fasting is indeed useful, and, and I would encourage you to, to do it in your Christian life. It's a great help. It's important. However, in Jesus' day, it become more than just a great help. It become a means by which you prove that you're worthy of God. And so we notice in our text, who is not fasting? Jesus! Jesus is not fasting. And so they ask the question, why? And I think there are two primary things, at least I'm only going to point out to. First is timing, and the second is teaching. I had a, a friend in seminary who always used to, to tell me, he, he wasn't the, the greatest joke teller, but he would say, Hey, hey, do you know the key to a good joke? Timing, timing. And he would totally flub, right? The key to a good joke is timing, right? So the key here, likewise, is timing. The key to fasting properly is timing. Jesus' disciples will fast But not right now. Jesus tells those that are questioning him that his disciples will fast, in verse 20, in the days when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And so the time to fast is when you consider the cost of your sins. The time to fast is when the groom is taken away. It's the first allusion to Jesus' death in Mark's gospel. He's aware of the consequences of his confrontations with the religious authorities. He's aware of what rocking the proverbial boat will cost him. He knows that the religious leaders will seek to kill him and that they will succeed. Jesus knows that like Isaiah's suffering servant, he will be cut off from the lame. That he as the bridegroom will be snatched away to suffer alone on a cross. To atone for our sins. To die the death we should have died. To pay the price for sin that we should have paid. He died in your place. In my place. He bore the wrath you deserved. The wrath I deserved. He took my judgment. He took your judgment. God killed his son so that he would not have to kill you. There's an appropriate time to fast and mourn. It's when you consider the infinite price paid for your sins by your Savior. Jesus' disciples don't fast because the timing is wrong. And Jesus is ushering in a new teaching. And this new teaching is wildly offensive to Judaism because it, the gospel, fulfills and supersedes Judaism. Jesus brought a new internal gospel of repentance and forgiveness by grace that cannot be mixed with the old Judaism of tradition and self-righteous works, or with any other religion for that matter. You see, the Jews had misunderstood a proper use of the law. We discussed this a little bit when we went through Galatians in chapter 3. 
We said that God gave the law as a railroad track to show us the route to heaven along which the engine of the Holy Spirit would pull us if we were coupled to him by faith. But the Judaizers and Galatians and the Pharisees here and other religious types today who know nothing of living in union with Christ take that railroad track of the law and they turn it into a ladder on which they can climb up to heaven by their own moral initiative, by our own effort. And that's why Paul writes in, in relation to this in Galatians three ten and 11, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For indeed, the righteous shall live by faith. Again, he writes in Romans 9, starting with verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus' new teaching is opposed to works righteousness. And he's disrupting the status quo of that system. The rock of offense is changing the way they've always done things. So the question of verse 18, why don't you fast, insinuates that if Jesus and his followers really intend to be taken seriously, well, they better get with the program. They better get with the proper fasting protocol. Ah, but Jesus isn't getting with the protocol. He's changing everything. This new teaching changes everything. And change always makes people a little bit nervous. Imagine with me for a moment that next Sunday when you came in here, uh, all the pews were gone and they were replaced by folding chairs. And uh, the piano was gone and and replaced by an accordion played by my friend Taryn, of course. Uh, The windows were blacked out. We had laser system, right? Maybe uh, some kind of a tank up here. Maybe a fog machine. I see some of you sweating a little bit. That's the point here, though. Jesus is going against the traditional grain. He's making people, oh no, this change is coming. They're kind of going, everyone's not fasting. Sound the alarm. He's not fasting, so he's a religious, he's got to fast. I mean, when things change, no one usually likes it. I hear people, they're shocked at what Jesus is doing. I mean, he's eating and partying with sinners. I mean, a good rabbi would never do such things. He should be fasting and he's feasting. He's a friend of sinners. He's a glutton and a drunk. That's what they called him anyway. But see, he was bringing something new. The rituals and religious stuff in the lives of the Pharisees and the religious folks had become their treasure rather than God. Consequently, they're more concerned with those rituals than with true holiness and genuine affection for God. Their so-called good works 
had become a mask for their continued sin. Friends, hear me, there is a danger that Christianity become a friendly veneer on our lives, while inside we are filthy. There's a danger that we build our identity on our damnable good works rather than on Christ. There's a danger that we love self-righteous religious activity rather than Jesus. There is a danger that we trust in our own self-righteousness instead of Christ's righteousness. Whose work do you trust? Yours? Or Jesus? Why don't Jesus and his disciples fast? It's not time to fast. It's not time to mourn, but time to celebrate. Jesus' new teaching, the gospel is unique. It's powerful. It's explosive. And it changes everything. The bridegroom has come. It's not time to fast. It's time to feast. Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So against this kind of sorrowful picture of fasting, it's usually more mournful, self-reflective. Jesus volunteers a picture of celebration, a wedding feast. Now, you need to know that a wedding in, in Jewish life was kind of a big deal, right? In a Jewish village, normally it lasted seven days for a virgin bride or three days for a remarried widow. Friends and guests had no responsibility except for to enjoy the festivities. There was abundance of food and wine and song and dance. There was fun inside the house and outside in the yard and onto the street. I mean, the picture that Jesus paints of this wedding is, is just guests waiting to eat, right? I mean, think contemporary wedding reception. And you know what I'm talking about, most of you. You go to the ceremony and that lasts an hour or so and there's a meal to follow. But before they give you food, they make you endure that really long like cocktail hour. It's usually longer than an hour or so. And you're sitting around like, I'm ready to eat. I'm starving. What Jesus is saying is that imagine yourself, you're ready to eat. They put the food out right in front of you. They're ready to send you to the buffet, place that food in front of you, uh, have you hit up those heavy hors d'oeuvres. And at that moment, all of a sudden it's announced, it's time to fast, guys. Keep fasting. We're not going to eat. See, the wedding is a time of celebration. It's inappropriate to fast. Jesus describes his mission as a wedding, himself as the bridegroom, and his disciples as the guests of the bridegroom. A wedding is not a time to abstain, but a time to live it up. Jesus again thrust his person and his mission prominently, inescapably, at the center stage. If the disciples of John and the Pharisees would grasp the significance of who Jesus is, they would understand that they're asking the wrong question. But the true question is not, why don't Jesus and his disciples fast? But why aren't we celebrating? See, they should celebrate rather than fast. Jesus has flipped the script, right? He's asking them, he's saying, we don't fast because it's time to celebrate. The Messiah has come and I am He. Why don't you celebrate the presence of the Messiah? And they really just don't celebrate because they love the form of godliness. They love their rituals, their activities, rather than the power 
of the gospel. They love the way that they've always done things more than the heart behind those things. They are into self-righteousness. Jesus preached grace. They were into denying that they were sinful. He preached repentance from sin. They were proud of their religiosity. He preached humility. They were into external ceremony. He preached a transformed heart. They held tightly to the old. He offered the new. They loved the approval of men. He offered the approval of God. They had ritual. He offered Relationship. Relationship is far more than religious activity. It's far more than ritual. Hear me. If your faith is no more than routine rituals in your life, you will go to hell. The form of godliness without its power is powerless. Let me press further into this. If this time together on Sunday morning... If that's the whole of your religion, then you will go to hell. Our gathering on Sunday is a time that we encourage one another, love one another, and worship God alongside of one another. But the week, our moment-to-moment ordinary lives is the place that we live out our faith. That's where we live in relationship with Jesus moment by moment. I mean, this time together, it's great. It's to encourage one another. To instruct us in our worship of God throughout the week as we live. This is the, the metaphorical locker room and the world is the field of play. This is the time that we plan and prepare and watch film and get ready and get fired up. We worship together rightly to set the tone for our hearts for the rest of the week. Sunday church service is not the whole of your faith. If all your faith is, is an hour a week, you will go to hell. Because Jesus demands much more than that. He demands all of your life. Because all of life is worship. And He will not give His glory to another. He deserves it all. He deserves all of your life. All of your worship. And if church attendance... It's just a tired ritual. Then in coming you have the form of godliness, but not its power. The power of godliness comes not from the form, but from the content. From being made new. From being united to Christ by belief in Jesus. How foolish it would be to hear the gospel week after week. And to come to church. And to continue to trust in your own works rather than in the finished work of Jesus. The works-based system of salvation is completely bankrupt. Ritual cannot save. Only a relationship with Jesus Christ can save you. It should be pointed out that a relationship with Jesus is not a solemn and boring affair. It's a celebration. It's a spiritual banquet of joy and blessing. In other words, we ought to be holy but not somber, moral but not legalistic, righteous but not stern, because there is joy in Jesus. Friends, don't mourn when it's time to celebrate. Jesus and the disciples feast in celebration. And the question isn't why don't Jesus and the disciples fast, but why don't the Pharisees feast and celebrate the presence 
of the Messiah? Why isn't everyone celebrating Jesus? Because the gospel is unique, powerful, explosive. It changes everything. The times they are a change in, people don't like change. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus is shifting the imagery again. This time away from the wedding feast into into two concise parables. Both parables are going to demonstrate that Jesus came to make things new, not to perpetuate the old. The chief impression of both parables is their finality. The unshrunk patch will pull away from the old garment, making the tear worse. Likewise, the wineskins will burst and be ruined or destroyed. Trying to contain the gospel in the old wineskins of Judaism is akin to trying to contain a package of Mentos in a Coke bottle. If you haven't done that, it's, it's really fun and you should try it later. Take some Mentos, put them in a two liter of Coke. It's a great big explosion. You can't contain the gospel in those old wineskins. It'll explode them. In both instances here, in both parables, something once serviceable is destroyed and of no further worth. The new patch and the new wine are incompatible with the old cloth and the old wineskins. And if the attempt is made to combine them, the new substance will destroy the old. Both parables are about the relation of Jesus, of Christianity, to traditional Judaism. The parables illustrate the radical posture and presumption of Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the new patch. I am the new wine. He's not an attachment, an addition, an appendage onto the status quo. He cannot be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures. Not even in Judaism or the Torah or the synagogue. The images of the new cloth and the new wine illustrate the revolutionary effect of God's new work in Jesus. What the Jewish leadership feared was true. Jesus is bursting the old categories of Judaism. The true religion of the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ. The Judaism that rejects Jesus is a false religion. Right on the heels then of Jesus declaring that he has the authority to forgive sins, he's making it crystal clear that what he's preaching is completely opposite of what the Pharisees are preaching. What the Pharisees preached is that you work your best, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you earn your way to God by your own self-righteousness. Jesus' message is so different, it's so opposite. He's saying no. I came to save the worst of sinners that acknowledge I can't do it on my own. I can't fulfill the law. He offers forgiveness to the worst of the worst, to people like me and you. This is outrageous to the religious folks. 
Jesus brings a new internal gospel of repentance and forgiveness by grace that cannot be mixed with the old Judaism of tradition and self-righteous works or with any other religion. The old garment, by the way, is not God's law, God's holy law. It's, it's not the Old Testament. It is the religion of Judaism. And the pieces of the gospel can't be stitched into it. The Christian gospel stands alone as the only way to salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through Him. Any other way is no way at all. The gospel is incompatible with all other religious systems. Salvation only comes by grace through faith in Jesus. As we pointed out earlier, change makes everyone a little bit nervous, usually a little bit uncomfortable. And in Luke's account, chapter 5, verse 39, uh, in his account of these events, he also records Jesus saying this to point out just that. And no one after drinking old wine wishes for the new. True story. For he says the old is good enough. Jesus is pointing out that it's very natural for people to hang on to what is familiar to them. But he's also saying that the old must give way to the new. So the question posed by the image of the wedding feast and the two parables is not whether the disciples will make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and their already full lives. The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration. Whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. See, the gospel is unique, it's powerful, it's explosive, and it changes everything. And this idea is also present in the parables of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. In both cases, someone discovers something infinitely more valuable than everything else. And in both cases, they sell everything and follow. They go get the treasure, they go get the pearl. Sell everything and follow Jesus. It's the point of the parables. See, to follow Jesus, you must forsake all other systems of self-salvation. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. The Christian gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And He is the only way to God. If you're holding on to anything else, if you think anything else will get you to heaven, it will go to hell with you. Let go of your foolish self-works. Sell everything. Buy the pearl of great price. Buy the treasure. And if you buy the treasure, you will find that great truth that Paul writes of in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Indeed, behold, if anyone is in Christ, the old has passed away. The new has come. The new will come. You will be made a new creation in Christ Jesus. And you'll discover what it is to have life and life abundant. Let me ask you this morning, friend, will you believe in Jesus? Will you trust in His goodness and be made new? Or will you stumble over Jesus, the rock of offense, and cling to your own rotten goodness and remain dead in your sin? plead with you this morning, friends. Come to the way. Come to the truth. Come to the life. 
The gospel is unique, it's powerful, it's explosive, and it changes everything. Have you believed? Have you been changed? Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've determined to bring us to yourself, to reconcile us to yourself through the preaching of the gospel. And we thank you that the gospel is true. That you laid all of our sins upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Poured out your wrath on him instead of on us. And that by faith in him, we can have life. Because indeed, he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the perfect death that we deserved to die. And Lord, he raised to life. Proving to us all that indeed he is God. And that he deserves our obedience. Lord, we look forward to that glorious day when we will be made like him. When these imperishable, I'm sorry, when these perishable bodies put on the imperishable. And we're raised to new life. And you make this earth new. We get to enjoy a wedding feast that never ends. A celebration of your victory over death. A celebration of your infinite glory and your infinite worth. Lord, you are excellent. You are our treasure. And we delight together in you this morning as we sing. Amen.